It's a wonderful profession. In over 20 years of doing this, I've met eight truly greedy veterinarians. Eight out of thousands that I talk with and work with. And money's just not a motivator, which makes it easy to not pay attention. Vetex International, this is Blunt Dissection. I'm Dave Nicol. On today's show, I'm joined by David McCormick. David is a veterinary valuation appraiser and transaction specialist, working with veterinarians throughout their ownership journey to help evaluate financial health so owners can make better business decisions. To give that a better outline, David, in the same way that veterinarians look at lab tests and x-rays to diagnose disease in animals, uses financial reporting tools to diagnose and treat unhealthy practices or help new owners understand their numbers from the beginning. In short, he's a veterinary business health wizard who can read the leaves of your accounts and accurately predict much about your practice without ever walking in the door, a skill that every practice owner or manager would do very well to master too. His career pathway to veterinary medicine was not direct and frankly is worth an interview all on its own merits, with animal encounters in exciting remote places and a near miss as a musician featuring highly. But it was his father Larry, an MBA holding veterinarian, that was the magnetic draw back into a world he was immersed in as a child. More on that in the interview. David holds degrees in science, environmental resource management, and a master's in agricultural education. He's a regular and hugely popular speaker on the veterinary world speaking circuit, a charter member of Vet Partners, serving as its president in 2006, and was the practice management education manager for the Western States Veterinary Conference in Las Vegas for seven years. Now, just before we jump into the episode, a quick word from today's show sponsor, which is the Thrive community from us here at VetEx. If you are struggling with managing time, feeling like an imposter, or you're burned out, then you need to make a change. The good news is you're not broken and you're not a bad fit for the profession. You're simply missing some super important skills no one teaches at university. Skills you will learn as part of the Verex community. Thrive is a race accredited professional skills course where members receive training, toolkits and one-to-one coaching to develop these skills. So join hundreds of other vets who've changed their careers for the better as a Thrive member. To learn more, visit vetexinternational.com today. Now back to the show. Well-managed practices which return good profit margins, allow for better staff salaries, more investment in nice things to help standards of care and fair return for owners who put their capital at risk. Having seen him keep the rapt attention of all of the attendees at the PSI Vet Business Symposium the day before we did this interview, I knew I'd find my guy to talk about a subject that, frankly, most veterinarians tend to glaze over about. Profit is not a dirty word. There, I said it. Regardless of your age or stage in veterinary medicine, this might be one of the most important conversations you listen to, because in the end, economics determine just about everything. So enjoy this, my conversation with the financial wizard and frisbee-chasing David McCormick. So welcome to another episode of Blunt Dissection. Before I introduce today's guest, I have to say, the location we're recording this in and I'm very, very excited to be back for real. This is like the first in-person interview. So I'm a little nervous, actually, <laughs> to do this. and very excited. So hopefully I don't babble too much. But we're sat in the belly on the main stage, which is really cool to describe it to you. There's three giant jumbotron screens behind us, which is all very bling. And three little monitors that our speakers get to look at. So, you know, and then an array of tables laid out before us and a big empty 
room which was absolutely bursting with people earlier. Marty Becker's just come off the stage. And my guest today, David McCormick, has also delivered a brilliant presentation. So it's super, I'm super happy to have you on the show, David. Uh, I'm thrilled to be here and on the stage. You described it well. It's a pretty neat place to be recording and having this chat here. It feels very baller to be up here doing this, I have to say. So, <laughs> and David, I've been keen to have you on the show for such a long time. I ask people for recommendations and who I should have on as a guest. And your name has come up more than once. So it's great to have this conversation. And for any of our, my regular listeners will know, we always start with the biggest, most important questions first. So the first question is, is it true, because I've heard, and I can't reveal my sources, that you can do the splits? <laughs> <laughs> it was true. <laughs> I could probably get pretty close, but I'd tear my show, my pants here. Because you, uh, I mean, you're like, again, audio, so people can't see us. Yeah. Our heights are, there's a delta there. There is a delta. It's uh, about 6'4". I'm settling. I've it's, reached that point where my, age is, <laughs> my height is settling. I'm kind of hoping that I can grow up to, I want to grow up to be you someday, but I'm like, am I 5'7"? I think I'm, I'm going to fall a long way short yeah. from that. So we're not going to have a split-off competition here. No, I, probably it's not wise. <laughs> I agree, I agree. Okay, so it's an actual affirmative, though. You used to be able to do them. Yeah, if I, I stretch a lot. Yeah. So I just haven't been lately, so... Are you a runner? I used to be. My knees won't let me do that anymore. Uh-huh. I'm a, my physical activity now is disc golf. That's one of my non-work passions. Okay, right. So let's go there. I realize this is not veterinary medicine, and it's not even close to being on the script, but that's blunder section. So yeah. tell me more. Disc golf. Disc golf. So I've been playing now four or five years. This year, I actually decided I'm going to play to improve. Okay. Not just have fun. So a disc golf course, and there's hard ones and easier ones, but essentially you have several discs. They're like about, frisbees? Yeah, frisbees. Okay. That are... Maybe eight inches in diameter. Yep. And you have a tee pad, and you're throwing to a basket, which is about four or five feet high, and it has chains hanging. How far away? The distance can be anywhere on a short course, maybe 210 feet. I've played courses, because when I travel, I take discs with me, and I've played courses all over the country, and some of them are six, 700. And you have, on a short course, you'll have a par three, a long course, it might be a par four or par five. Oh. And the discs, you have putters, drivers, ones that will curve to the left, ones that curve to the right, if you throw <laughs> it correctly. This is incredible. Do you have any discs with you? I did not bring them this time. Oh. I wasn't going to have time to sneak out. But we, it, uh, this would have been amazing to play disc golf in the main room it, off of the main stage. Oh, yeah. Yeah, when you get... It's just as frustrating... My arms and legs are long. I'm not a good stick golfer or ball golf. <laughs> it's a lot of coordination required but, for that. But the disc golf is just as frustrating. Oh, I over-rotated. I didn't open up my hips. I, my grip wasn't right. And it, the thing does the same. I can't throw a frisbee oh, the ball, for love or, or the money. disc goes in the wrong direction or you two-putt. It's a wonderfully frustrating game. So who was it? Was it Churchill described golf as a, a nice walk ruined? A good walk ground. Does it got the same level of frustration that you do a one great shot? Well, it's kind of like the old adage, you know, a bad day fishing is better than not fishing. (laughs) And a bad day golf, because I play with several mates and my boys, and you can have a terrible time. Yep. But it's me against me. It's not me against them. And it's still better than not golfing. 
I love the notion of it. Well, there you go. Like that is immediately learned two things, which I didn't, I hitherto did not know. So it sounds like something I I should give a shot at. I recommend it. And everyone I've met, it's like being in the veterinary profession. They're good people. Yeah. The disc golfers, you know, I I can't tell you how many times I've been solo and somebody will come up behind, hey, let's play together. And just very friendly. They love spreading the disc golf joy. (laughs) <laughs> and their courses, like they're all over the country. All that over. You can, I have an app that shows me their nearby courses. There's an app uh, for that. With reviews. Of course yep. there is. You disc. Of course there is. Right. It sounds, um, I mean, being Scottish, and I hail from St. Andrews, so, you know, the, the home of the stick golf. And it reminds me of, you know, playing golf in St. Andrews is, is not always a forgiving experience right. because it's, you know, the wind can be howling in off the North Sea. And the rain literally will be going sideways across the course, and it is misery. It's a definition of it. And then in the sun, you know, with the skylarks, you know, hovering high above the course, and it's beautiful. It's incredible. Oh, incredible. I can imagine disc golf in the, the rain yeah, and wind the, doesn't really work. Tournaments, there's a pro league, a pro circuit, and they'll play out and everything. And But you get into the woods and trees and long, narrow shots <laughs> through a tunnel or ones you have to go out and around. You're just going to get stuck up a tree. Do you have a long like, oh, telescope yeah, and pole to try and get it back? I mean, you probably you don't lose need discs. it. You lose discs. I've lost a, a lot of discs. I, I lost, I played, I was speaking at a conference in outside of uh, Tampa in Florida, and I went and played a course, and my disc went in the pond. <laughs> and You're not swimming in that pond to get well, that Well, I started. Right? I'm like, it was oh. my favorite disc. Oh, no. And so I started in there. And then the leeches started swimming towards me. And I was like, I'm not going in there. <laughs> and they're the least of the things you're worried about. Swimming in the pond in yeah. Tampa, right? Like, that's, oh yeah, it, uh, you're a brave but, man. But a disc only costs 15 to $20. So okay, well that's... It's a, easy entry. It's cheaper, <laughs> yeah, cheaper than losing the club. That's for sure. Yeah. Okay, all right. So I want to sort of ask you a little bit more. Your background, your, your presentation today... And I think one of the reasons I'm super keen to speak to you is just the wealth of knowledge about how to, particularly we're maybe going to focus on the finances of practice life uh, today. But I kind of want to take us back, before we dig into the meat there, a little bit more about you as the person. And how did you find your way into veterinary medicine? I first came across your name, I think it was, I, I was sat in the, the bar, as people tend to, in the Marriott in Kansas City at what was CVC Central, or maybe it's CVC. No, yeah, it's CVC uh, Central. It was yeah. Central one, right? And it was Bruce Truman was talking. Oh, yep. And I think that's where your name first came onto my radar a number of years ago, hence my slight embarrassment about this being our first proper conversation. So I'm kind of curious, like, how did you find your way into veterinary medicine? My father's a veterinarian, and I grew up in that line, and I was going to head to college and be a veterinarian. But I, I'm firstborn. I have three younger brothers. Yep. And I realized early on, Dad was very successful. And being firstborn, I had to do it as well or better than Dad. Right. And I looked at the opportunity cost. You know, family dinner was at 8 o'clock at night. Yep. And after dinner, Dad went down to the basement office and worked. And worked on the evenings and weekends. And, and I thought, you know, I'm not going to, to do that. He was there always for us in all the family activities and... But I just thought, I'm not, I don't want that. And so I went, my undergraduate degrees was in biology and resource management. And, and I spent, after college, I spent my time in two areas, one in field biology. 
Right. Because I wanted to experience a lot of different eco zones. Okay. So I've been in northern Minnesota doing owl research, Colorado mountains, where I was a backcountry ranger, wildfire fighter. I've been in the Antarctic studying penguins. Trying to get as much experience as I could, right. I was going to then go back to school and enter in academia okay. and teach. Yep. And along that route, we had a college band. My buddy uh, said, we never finished it. <laughs> We've got to do it. And so we reformed as a duet doing singer-songwriter, oh, cool. Nancy Griffith, yep. the type stuff. And we had a business plan. We had taxes. And the band grew to where, well, just us, and then we added a drummer. But the music grew to the point where I think it kills a lot of bands. You're too big that the booking distracts from the art, yeah. but you're not big enough to afford a manager. And in our business plan, we had debt triggers, and those triggers hit, and that was the end of the band. Huh. So I skipped over when I, we were computer consultants and a lot of other things I did. I was getting ready at that to start teaching, and this was in 99, and Dad had sold his practice. His classmate... Dr. Jim Wilson, the veterinary attorney, mm -hmm. and Dad and Jim had their company, Priority Veterinary Management Consultants. And he said, Dad had said, you know, what's the school's going to pay you to teach? I don't know what the number is, but he said, I'll pay you more. Just be my assistant. And he was doing valuations right. at the time and practice management consulting. And within the first year, the aha moment, that's what I needed to be doing. Left brain, right brain. I had all the analytic work, yeah. the spreadsheets, the analysis, helping people reach their goal. And then I think the first time I spoke was around 2002 or three with Roger Cummings, Karen Felstead, yep. Charlotte Lacroix. And suddenly that was my stage time from being a musician. So here I've got left brain, right brain. I'm helping people. I'm teaching. And performing. And performing, wearing the costume. And it was just this perfect... And then snap, it's been 23 years later. <laughs> and the people I get to help is the passion, even today, if they just get one thing from that 90 minutes that makes a difference in their practice, then, yeah, worth every. All of your zones of genius just sort of arrived. Yeah, perfect. In the same spot. Harmony. And your presentation was excellent. I could see two things. One, one was the showman in you. Like, it was a very engaging presentation. I think somebody came up in the hallway afterward and said, you know, you made a, a what could be a dry subject, which I have to say, I, I disagree with. I think the numbers are very interesting. But you made it engaging, particularly for clinical people who don't really, right. you know, unless the numbers are a blood report. And you made that very relatable. So the showman bit was on clear display. But the amount of passion and caring for having practices the work that the veterinarians put into and particularly owners you know, we hear a lot about wellness impacts on veterinarians right owners are under a whole different level of pressure and stress you know the, the pressure of making payroll is a you know that's what keeps us awake at night and often to the detriment of our own take-home salary most definitely and i think it's good owners not all but good owners it's not just your team you're taking care of you're taking care of their families yeah and, you know, what you're enabling and through the work environment, you know, that influences their children and their partners. That's a lot on the owners and good managers' shoulders. And not every owner has a good manager. Yeah. 
but it uh, it's weighty. And it's one thing I recognize when they're sitting here in the room listening and getting all these ideas. It's out of context. Yeah. And then they get back into the fire and all those great ideas. Just get uh, burned up. Yeah. yeah. How do you think, you know, this is always the challenge when people go to conferences. And I wonder, you know, from a speaker perspective, and I'm sure you do a lot of learning of your, your own and you go to different conferences and to keep yourself current. How do you advise people or have you got any advice or things that have worked for you on how to avoid that? You know, because an event like this, you've got things that are really, a, it's a mile wide and a, a couple inches deep. And, and the overwhelm is very real for people. You can see the enthusiasm, the energy, but it's almost like they're running on the spot and then just get, I don't know where to start, overwhelmed and shut down. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So educational psychology has what's called the zone of proximal development, which essentially means that you'll only truly learn and internalize that which you're ready to learn. Because of that, and because it's overwhelming if you come back with this list of 20 ideas, (laughs) what I recommend to folks at the end of these meetings, review your notes, pull out three things, no more, and then put on your calendar next month, I'm going to go back and read it all again. So you do those three things, and then you go back for three more. And revisiting the notes, because now you're coming at it from a different perspective. Your zone of proximal development has moved. As a side story, on the zone of proximal development, I learned it with my master's, and I didn't never experienced it. So I was a key account speaker, and I taught this workshop, and I gave them a full day, which is all I have. I... uh, I'm very deep, yep. but very narrow, very narrow in my content. I try to be not a jack of all trades. Yes. I'm a master of one. And I gave them everything I had in that day. And the following year, they said, we want you to come back. I said, I gave you everything. What? I can't do anything different. No, do it all again. And I resisted. And finally, I acquiesced. I'm like, okay. And we added some financial review one-on-one time to make it more engaging. Yeah. After the session... The attendees, it was the exact same attendees, came up. Why didn't you tell us that last year? Well, I did. But you weren't ready for it. Go back to your notes. You wrote it down. It was all there. But you weren't ready for it. And now it resonates with you in a different way because your zone has shifted. So I think setting aside that time to revisit your notes and the priorities. I want to dig into some of the things that you were teaching. But I sort of wondered, maybe as a, a starter question in there, and I, I, let me set this up a little bit differently. So a big mentor of mine who is a member of Vet Partners and who has sadly passed away now from the UK, John Sheridan. Yes. He was a big influence for me when I was first getting interested in business management. And I remember him posting content. And I think that's where my really why I've ended up coming to the US so much was really John's conduit for us in the UK who were willing to listen. He was bringing just interesting, fresh data insights. And I remember him posting somewhere, and this would have been, this would have been back in the sort of probably the, the mid to late 2000s or the noughties. And the content he was putting out there saying that, you know, the, the vast majority of practices in North America are in that sort of no or low profit bracket at the time, you know, 5 to 8% sort of net profit. And I was kind of shocked by that. Now, I'd, I'd gotten my break in veterinary management because... I was working, and you described a similar practice actually in your presentation, I was working in a a practice that was generating nearly three million pounds, so maybe 
well, now that's about $3 million, but about four at the time the pound had any value. Yeah, yeah it, it would have been about four and a half, five million dollars $5 in revenue. It was a 15, probably 15 full-time equivalent, 18 doctors on staff. And I assumed with my boss that we were making, you know, really good money, as all assistants do. We think, oh, yeah, the boss is making right. like quarter making a million quick, pounds yeah. a year kind of thing. And when I asked the questions and I was pushing to get a leadership role and I finally got to see the accounts and it, it lost about 3%. And I could not believe, I was like, what is going on here? Now I kind of knew instinctively what was going on because I was working in it every day. I could see the sort of, sure. the way, the, the things that were happening, but I had no prior to connection to the P&L account, the profit loss account, what that behavior, how that showed up when it came to the numbers of the business. And it, it literally, it gave me a break, but it must have been pretty stressful for the owner and then we worked pretty hard to get that practice to net 10% over the next three years and grew the revenue to four million and and that was four million pounds maybe about six six and a half us and and a net 10 and that was a heck of a lot of shoving to get there i think my question from that as a background would be what sort of percentage of practices in the united states sit in that no low category now as a part A, and then what are the number one mistakes that are being made yeah. that put them there? So I'm on the valuation council from Vet Partners, which is 25 friends, colleagues, and competitors, all of whom are accredited veterinary-specific appraisers. And based on our conversations we meet monthly, it seems like the average practice of any type and any size is 10 to 12% profitable. So if you envision that bell-shaped curve, yep. that hump in the middle, a no-low practice, no or low profitability, and thereby no or low value, our practice is 9% or less. Right. So we're looking at 40%. Four in 10 practices are probably no-low. I value 120 practices a year. Yep. And that, that hits that, and it hits all sizes. We consider a practice to be financially healthy if it's 14 to 18%. That's, that's our goal. Is shining the light on the issues. If you're 10, why are you not 16? Well, let's find the missing six yep. between revenues, expenses. And what determines, if I, th- I just think about other industries, you know, the, the supermarkets, for example, you know, if you're getting one, two, like maybe even 3% is a really good margin for a, a Walmart or something like that. And their share, shareholders would be delighted. Of course, the volumes are gigantic. What determines for you, what are the, the cutoffs? Like why is... 10 or 9% uh, no low versus a 5%. And well, what's financially, how do you, what makes it, what, why is 14% I think a that's good That's a good question because those numbers we kind of, we being the valuators, have kind of defaulted into. Dad actually coined the term no low. We were sitting in, at the time we had a basement office and we were seeing these nice practices yeah. with good revenues, with all the bells and whistles in nice facilities with no value. Yeah. And so we started talking to our colleagues, you know, calling Denise Tumblin, calling Marsha Heinke, Karen Felstead. Hey, are you seeing this too? Lorraine List, Gary Glassman. Yeah, I don't know what's going on. And it became our mission at the time to try and educate. And the council did a lot through that. I wanted N-O-L-O-W. Dad said, no, we'll just go N-O-L-O for no low he won <laughs> but the nine percent or less at the time if you remember ncvei yes so we there was more data coming from that 
And that's where that average kind of came out and then substantiated after NCVI faded out by the council and the valuations that we do. And so with 10 to 12 being the average, then we slid it down both sides and nine just made a lot of sense as the cutoff for a NOLO. A NOLO practice is still a good practice. It's not a judgment. It's just a statement of fact. And I think even on VIN now, if you type in NOLO, it's still the longest thread. Yes. And then the opinions on it are, you know, staggering. And then the 14 to 18, I do think 20, 30, 40 years ago, the average was probably 18, 20, 25%. The downward pressure on profitability, you can't mark drugs up as much. A good staff costs more. That downward pressure on profitability has really made it, can you get to 14? I mean, can't. This is a question that we've been asking in, in my practice, and certainly we went through with COVID. A number of things are happening in the lead up to that where, you know, ownership change, uh, a bit of change, COVID came along, and then really resetting of vision and uh, you know, virtual complete reset of team, reset of culture, um, which was a very painful process to go through and Im- impacts sure. on profitability, but also a very, now looking back, very good process to have gone through You've just had a you know a really good our year end is a bit wonky from when we started the business, but a very very good year this year and it, it feels for the first time sustainable and there are two words that I've committed to in the last two years and I think they'll probably be words that stay with me for the rest of my career intentional and sustainable and really being I think you used the phrase cognitively engaged right. with why things are happening even if and I imagine that's what you alluded to with that thread on the Nolo. For some people, that's okay because they want to service the community. They don't want to leave pet owners behind and they're okay with leaving money on the table. But one of the things that interests me, and we've said as a team, I'll be quite happy with a a practice running about 15. I look at the wage and the inflationary pressure now, and I've I've got a couple of copies of newspapers here and obviously the headlines now. So this is the Wall Street Journal from yesterday. Core inflation revs to a new high. Overall, 8.2%, core inflation at 6.6%. You, you can see the picture curves there, just the, 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 oh, the yeah. changes in core consumer prices are just you know sitting at 6.7%, spiked up a little earlier, up at 9%. And that's US. I mean, UK is, is worse than that. Most of our audience are, are US or Canadian. Uh, today, <laughs> today, my country is making some embarrassing headlines as, as we, yeah, our I government looks to implode and the markets have just gone horrible. But against this inflationary backdrop, you know, even prior to that, in our quarterly planning meetings, I've never been in a a situation where the things we talk about when we discuss the economic outlook have changed so dramatically. Like there's something new we're talking about every three months. Some of it very sad and unfortunate, like, you know, the war in, in Ukraine and the impacts that's having on fuel prices and commodity prices around the world. But the... Inflationary pressure was there on wages before that. It's obviously spiked up and and people need to live. What are the longer term impacts you think this has on profitability? For example, is a 20%, 25% practice even something that's ethically possible now? I don't think. I do have clients. They, you know, maybe one in in 25 one in 20, that are able to attain 18, 21, 22% profitable. It's usually because of geography. 
where they're located, they can hire a good team for not a lot of money, or the real estate costs are really low. So instead of the the average lease or rent as a percent of revenue being four to six, they're at one percent. Wow. So they pick up two or three percent there and yeah. another couple percent. So outside of the luck of location, I think it's really hard to get over 17, 18 percent yeah. profitability. And it's going to get harder. I have several clients this year coming from states that raise the minimum wage. And so they had to bump up their lowest, which means the next folks are now too low, and it trickled through, and they lost 3 or 4% profitability yeah. just by adjusting support staff wages. And you can't pass all of that on in fee increases. So that work smarter, not harder, try and do more with the same assets plays a role. But that does eat, and at least in the short term, into that profitability. Now, profitability is not or is very dynamic. It's not a stagnant number. So practices that go through a remodel or a relocation can have a a downward push or a downward push from a recession or local economy issues, and then it comes back. Yeah, Uh, It's very resilient. And I have several clients that are very successful, however you define it. One, I had a call last month. She's a profitable practice. And she just said, I'm a lucky millionaire. I didn't plan it. <laughs> because the, the profession can be very forgiving of mistakes, historically. It's becoming less forgiving, and now you're more average. But it's still, it's a wonderful profession. In over 20 years of doing this, I've met eight truly greedy veterinarians. Eight out of thousands Tiny that I talk with and work with. And money's just not a motivator, which makes it easy to not pay attention. And that's why at the tail end this morning, you know, I mentioned, you got to have your practice valued every three to five years. It's the, it's the wellness exam for your practice. They just don't know. And I think going through that with a good appraiser that's going to teach you, that's the key. Because if you want to stay where you are, that's great. But now you have the option to make change so that you can invest more in your staff or you can add that equipment, move in different directions. If I could do one thing for everyone that was here and all the practice owners, I would love to give them a free valuation every three to five years. It's it's that important. I can't. But if I could do anything in the profession, make that, that the norm. It's the old adage, what you measure you manage yeah it felt like a, a, maybe a penny drop for me as you said that was it felt a lot like doing your analysis on a patient on a pet doesn't necessarily tell you what's going wrong or what's the issue but it certainly gives you you know if you've got a good number things are probably quite healthy in your business right. if you've got a low usg or or there's some protein in there or something you're like hmm i don't know why that is but we need to have a look more deeply at that yeah, it's good management's about asking questions, and you can't question it if you don't know. Measure it. To at least say, is this what we want, or why is it this way? And then you can set aside time in your schedule, because it's fire to fire, <laughs> of, to research it further and make change if you want. So I would love to dig into some of the numbers. There's so many secondary follow-up questions. I'm furiously writing things down so I don't forget them. 
But as we go through, the, the track I'd love to dig down into and what constantly surprises me when, when I speak with practice owners is how few people know some of the core numbers. So the main part of this question is I would love to run through on a P&L account, what do people have to shoot for to get that sort of 15% rough mark? And what are the things that get in the way of them? And then part three, which I'll write down to make sure I come back to this is, is there a relationship between the countries? You know, I've, I've lived and worked in the UK. I've lived and worked and had practices in Australia. You know, never done that in the US, but you know, having many US or Canadian clients, you know, I've learned what the P&L numbers should be across here as well. So I just, I wonder if we can take those in, in three chunks. So what are the numbers and what are the, the most important ones to look at? What are the things we can do to, to kind of manage those numbers? And is there some kind of relationship between countries? Yeah, the number one, I look at three numbers diagnostically. And the, the first group is your, the variable expenses called cost of goods sold, cost yep. of professional services, the drugs, medical supplies, pharmacy, in-house lab, reference lab, flea tick, heartworm, pet foods, burial, cremation. It's the lion's share of it. They're variable in the sense that the expense varies with the revenue. Yeah. See more dogs, use more drugs. As a percent of revenue, it should stay fairly tight and consistent. Most practices struggle. This is inventory management. Most practices struggle with this, and this is the number one financial disease. The target range in general for a small animal practice in North America, 22 to 25% of revenue. Now, if you have a boarding grooming component or a pet supply store, then your number's going to be different. But I routinely see 27 to 35. Right. That, so if it's 28 number. or 30 and the average is 10% at the bottom line, well, there's 5% that didn't get there because of inventory management. You're at 30, you should be at 25. And what are therefore then the big mistakes that people make with inventory management? I think the number one mistake is that they elevate from within a technician. Oh, you're now in charge of the inventory. Yeah. And no training. They're not getting the resources that are out there and readily available on the education. I had a practice we valued and they had a full basement and down there they had puppy classes and did symposia for pet owners in the region, let other community groups use that space come back five years later for their next valuation and it's full with shelves and product oh wow and you know i don't know if maybe in high school that you ever did the experiment with a, a big beaker of water on a hot plate and you put a frog in it <laughs> and if you slowly turn up the heat the frog will not jump out and will die yeah whereas if you put the frog in hot water it jumps out and that's what happened to them. They elevated from within. The person ordering just ordered, oh, we need a set of shelves downstairs. And then that was full. And now we need another set. And a new veterinarian says, hey, I'd like this drug and then himself. Depth and, and nobody breath. challenges it. Yeah, nobody questions it. And so nobody's paying attention. And I think that's the most important. And they're speakers. I'm not an inventory specialist. You talk to Fritz Woods and Denise Tomlin and all the other colleagues out there that are so skilled at this. You know, the depth and the breadth and how often are you getting turnovers and are you shopping it? Too many. They just, oh, we always call Debbie because she's so nice and she gives us donuts. Debbie's not looking out for the practice. <laughs> I think for most folks, just paying attention, 
they can shave 1% to 4% very quickly. And it has nothing to do with fees. It's just how much are you ordering and are you selling it? And it's a relatively quick turnaround, that as well. If you're turning stock over, then just putting the brakes on a little and rationalizing things, instantly you're... I always think that it's a little bit being like the spleen where you've got you've just got some <laughs> blood smells stored away somewhere and then the blood is cash in this instance, right? And you can just squish the spleen and suddenly there's a bit more yeah. cash or profit in the business. I think the second error on inventory management, they're not using their software. At a minimum, they should be using the, the reports in their software should match what's on the shelves for your flea tick heartworm and your pet foods, the stuff that's easy to walk. Yeah. But most practices don't use it because, oh, it never matches. But that's why it should. Okay, I, I think we should dig into this a little bit more because I, I've experienced that. And my modus operandi is very much up in the big picture, the vision stuff. And, and I have a wonderful practice manager who's really in the weeds and does a terrific job. And that, as the practice owner, I suspect there's quite a lot of practice owners are much more in the clouds kind of thing. And it feels like, oh, that's a drama. That's just a hassle to input everything and we're going to have to tweak that. And so can you outline or sell the concept as clearly as you could so that bozos like me get it, why we should be really paying attention to that? Well, it's the number one drain on profitability to come back to what we already said. But it's such an easy fix. You have this sharp tool in the shed that you're not using. Yeah. And to, at a minimum, use it for your parasiticides and your pet foods, because that's the stuff that creeps the most. And by creep, you mean increases stock level or... Just disappears. legs and Just, disappears. Yeah, scratches legs. Oh, you know, I stayed late. Doc didn't even say thank you. I'm just going to take this home with me. Right. Hey, and for kicks and giggles, go on eBay and type in Brevecto. Type in HeartGuard. Type in anything. It's out there. And that came out of somebody's practice. Huh. Nobody buys it to turn around and sells it on eBay. It walks out the back door. Or it's given away to family and friends up front. Oh, here, I'm, that's not going to charge. And so oftentimes, if you just are seen tracking, it self-corrects the problem. So if you start with something like your parasiticides and people see, oh, we're paying attention to this now, I guess I'm not going to steal it anymore. Do you think every practice should have a camera on pharmacy? I do. I had a client, I had mentioned cameras on pharmacy and a client, or not a client, a, an attendee came up afterwards and said, with great fanfare, they announced we're going to have security cameras next month. And then next week, they're all they're going to be installed. The day of, wow, look at those cameras. That is so cool. I'm excited just for safety. That night, they caught a tech on film stealing had wow. come back to the practice. So, I mean, that's a Darwin Award. But, you know, I think you can't manage what you don't measure. Well, if you're not paying attention. And we make a lot of assumptions that we want to see the best in human beings. And a lot of the times I've heard about fraud, it's actually there's been circumstances that have led to somebody wanting to, like you say, you know, doc didn't thank me or financial pressure somewhere else that, you know, there's a, an element of desperation. Yeah. And that, you know, trust but verify, right? Delegate, trust them oversee them, provide the education, but then verify. Unfortunately, we encounter practices with high costs of goods sold, 30, 32%. And we start asking questions. The owner starts digging and finds the manager was stealing, 
or the inventory manager or somebody. The one indicator for folks, if your cost of goods sold as a percent of revenue is creeping up, it doesn't mean people are stealing or embezzlement, but it is an indicator. When embezzlement happens, that's the symptom. So it's important to watch that. And I think where we started in this section was, yes, that's number one, and, and it doesn't get enough attention. Yep. The second of the three areas to look and manage for multiple doctor practices is the doctor expense as a percent of revenue. After you adjust the owner's compensation such that it's in line with the associates, that ideally should be 20 to 22% of revenue for a small animal practice. You get into ERs and specialty, it can get a little bit higher. Large animal certainly can be higher as well because you have windshield time and lower productivity. This is the W-2 divided by gross revenue. And the W-2 is the, what they would put in on their tax On their tax, tax form, return. so the annual compensation to the associate. Okay. Big question in there, and a debate that seems to have raged time immemorial, and one that I've probably flipped on a number of times, and, and having experienced as an associate both forms, you know, my opinion really has wandered all over the place with this one, but I've come to you know, an opinion I think I'm pretty settled with now, but both sides seem to have very strong proponents, but pro-sal or salary, what's... So from my perspective as a, an appraiser, I don't care. As long as you're comparing it relative to their production. So every doctor needs to produce four to five times their cost. As an appraiser, it doesn't matter to me how you give it to them. Is it a salary? Is it base plus? Is it pro-sal, negative accrual? But I think at the end of the year, you need to look at how much did you give them and what did they produce? If they're producing more than four to five times, you've got the opportunity to step up and give a raise yeah. and maybe not lose that doctor to a headhunter. Right. If they're producing only two or two and a half, three times their cost, you got an opportunity to try and help mentor how can they become more productive. I don't think it's possible to use that as a reason that an associate's going to say, oh, I, I'll produce more. I think you flip it to the medicine side. You're a good doctor. How can we help more pets see you and focus on that instead of you need to produce more? Yes. But that four to five times is what keeps it in that 20%. So that's quite, quite a big difference between four and five. You're, you're going from a you know, 25% of base salary to 20 to 25%. And that struck me in your session as well. You know, there, that's 5% of, if you go four times, that's 5% of your net profit gone. How do you get a 15% practice if you're going to go four times? And are there circumstances where, like, why would anybody give four if the norm is five? Like, what yeah. are the, the factors that go into I that I use decision? four to five to account for differences in the style of practice. If you're high volume, low cost, okay. you're not going to get five because the fee structure is not there. If you're high product, If you're high, high touch... Marketing. Yep. and trusted advisor and wellness and proactive, then you, you might get that five, five and a half. Geography can play a role okay. in that as well, and, and local demographics, socioeconomic influences. So that's where, why okay, I so look at a, four to five. It's a, it's a banding that's useful for a room, but for an individual, it would depend very much. Like if you were in a high-touch practice in an area where you know, fees were higher, you wouldn't want to be shooting for four. You'd, you'd aim more at a five number Yeah, for that. and looking at what doctors produce. I have 
I target a full-time equivalent doctor should be producing four fifty, five hundred thousand annually, U.S. At the same time, I have practices. Oh, we're so busy. We're all there's three of us. We're just cranking, and they're producing two fifty each, and they think they're doing great. And I have another client right now. He'll do three million solo this year. Yeah, the guys that are on their own seem to push i mean three million is a massive number it's massive and that's really leveraging techs yeah and the techs have assistance and the assistants have assistance and cross training and everything i think most productive doctors i see are in uh, 550 to eight hundred thousand, and at 20 percent revenue they're making 140 150,000 a year which is a good debt paying wage but you have to be able to produce. So that leads into another possibly slightly incendiary question, which is, and perhaps this is one of the trends, the, the future-pacing things, we see now fear really playing, a, I think, a very inhibitory part in people's development. They don't want to do cases. You know, for, like specialty practices are filling up with cases that 10 years ago would have been caught would have in, been a, local. in a yeah. local practice. If you are in a position where you're referring things or you're you know, unwilling, unable, whether it's fear, imposter syndrome, or you, you flame out early, like, and you, you just, you can't stay with it long enough to get good. And this seems to be, if we're looking at sort of, you know, around about 80% of people you know, are at high risk of, of burnout. We're seeing the attrition rate in the profession right now. What impact does this have down the road, do you think, on the the fee generating Uh, potential. How do we navigate that if that is to be believed? It's a concern I have because from my perspective on the financial wellness of a practice and and the owner being able to sell that, as you move away from more advanced medicine, you're going to fill that with shoppable items, with product, with reactive lump and bumpectomies Mm -hmm. and, and things that they're comfortable doing. But there's also no margin in that for the practice because, uh, you know, the surgery table is only contributing to the practice's financial health when there's a body on it and the body's warm. Yes. If the lights are off, it's not doing anything. You have all of the expense and, and none of the revenues. I'm a big fan of oral health, and I think it's a huge untapped resource. But there's a lot of fear in that because I wasn't taught it mm. or it's too much. and. The good practice owners are getting their associates that education, you know, sending them out and Ira Lufkin, Luskin's classes or some of the other specialists out there that are teaching this and advancing that medicine. In absence of that, if you're referring that out, the practice isn't getting the revenues. You're not building that relationship with the clients that's in the pet's best interest. It's a slippery slope. Yeah, skills are stagnating or just yeah. not being built in the first instance. And so the, the quality of the practice is going to decrease. And I see this in practices with owners of a certain age. They're old. And they just stop doing as much. And so the quality of the practice slides. Mm. And that makes it, you know, I'm also the broker. So I help people buy and sell practices. And it's hard to sell a practice that the owner's coasting and is in revenues might be okay but the quality of the medicines declining those are my favorite practices to buy oh it's a great opportunity yeah because you can get in and start 
shifting it. Now, you have very important to do client education because the clients are expecting one thing. And so you've got it. Well, and that starts with the team. You got to educate the team because they think pre-anesthetic blood check. We don't do that. And they have to learn why so they can explain that to the clients. Yeah, there's a, a sequence and a, a phase to go through and moving through that that can be a bit bumpy. But once it clicks, it's... It's oh, and then the team like it and the educated clients, that's a force to be reckoned with because then they're going to hold you accountable. They want the best, whatever you've been teaching them. So that's the, the doctor numbers. Are there other numbers uh, you mentioned rent shooting for? Yeah, I think before, before the rent, we look at support staff. Uh-huh. And they, so inventory management, cost of goods sold, the doctor compensation, and then support staff. And those are the big three. And typically I see support staff 17 to 19% of revenue. W2s divided by revenue. Mm-hmm. So the annual cost for the employees, not including any benefits. That number, though, varies widely geography-wise. I cover nine states and let's say Virginia. Northern Virginia, D.C., Fairfax, uh, up in that area, the norm might be 20 to 22. Central Virginia, yeah, 17 to 19. You got I 81 corridor, Richmond, Virginia Beach. But you get down along the bottom tier, I have some practices 12 to 14 is their long term stable number. Just by nature, cost of living, what you have to pay to hire qualified individuals. So it can vary. But I when suppose it, licensing and requirements for a state would have an impact on that as well. It can if you're working with licensed techs. Yeah. That can pay. When it's high, it's not to say that staff's overpaid. It's usually they're underutilized. But it can drain, especially if you've got long-term employees that are at the glass ceiling of compensation. You're providing a great client experience, but you're going to be less profitable. Those three expense categories, cost of goods sold, doctor compensation, support staff, that's 60 75% of your revenues right there. And so having a close eye on them, most of the other expenses are not going to change right. with any great significance. So that medically and diagnostically, that's where we focus on a practice health. Okay. And so I feel like we've covered into some actions there as well. We perhaps didn't, we, we didn't answer the ProSal question. Did no, you, we, you didn't, we sorry, didn't. We didn't. defense on it. But as long as your number is, is kind of solid and you're aware of it, for me, where I've, I've sort of come to probably base plus, so a base that people can live on, and then a reasonably regular top-up on ProSal that allows them. It takes away the, you know, the, the question, that, and this is one of the scary things for me, I'd, I'd love to hear your opinion on this. You know, we're seeing a sort of, it feels like a bubble in wage inflation, and then Again, one of the narratives you hear out there and one of the things you hear is the, the huge sign-on bonuses. Somebody recently told me about you know, a sign-on bonus of $200,000. Now, that's clearly nonsense, and, and that sounds more like somebody, we will pay off your student loan debt in brackets written in very small print if you stay with us for 10 years and always produce this amount of money. It sounds like this heavy caveated. But there's a, a sense that at the same time as skill acquisition and fear is getting higher, meaning you know, skill quality perhaps is lower or willingness to really graft to get good at the, the art and the science of veterinary medicine seems diminished. A sense of what your worth 
seems to be increasing, particularly driven by you know the need for more disposable with inflation running rampant. But just you know the, the relief vets, the daily rates I'm hearing for relief vets, and the right. simple market economics. There's just not enough veterinarians around for the number of vacancies that are there. Feels like a real mismatch. That feels like a sustainability problem. Well, and I want to caveat all we've just talked about. It's very easy to generalize. Totally. And there are, you know, the issues of skill sets and confidence and imposter syndrome. It is out there. Yes. But I see a lot of associates, a lot of new grads get out and just crank right from the start. Within a year, they're doing a million in production. And so I don't think that that scenario is the average. And I think coming back to salary, base plus, pro-sal, if your salary, that's fine. It should be relative to the production, and it should go up or down, and the associate needs to know that. If you're base plus or pro-sal, then I think you're factoring that in. But I think if you're base plus, you need to spread that plus out over a longer period so to avoid negative accrual. But so that you don't have one month high, one month they're not hitting their base. Well, do it quarterly so they're more likely to average their base. And the base should move uh-huh. relative to how well they did. They start doing better, raise so re- the base. Right, so review that at the end of a year and go, okay, like you made 20000 more in, in bonuses here, so we're going to push you up. Let's push you 10, up. And you make less bonus, but you've got more certainty. Yeah, and I think regardless of the method that you use, use it consistently and at the end of the year, look at all of your doctors. What did they produce? What was their wage? Divide the wage by their production. That's effective compensation. Yep. Is that what you wanted? And is it equitable among your doctors? So you don't have a high-producing doctor that is effectively underpaid. They're comfortable with their pay, but it's effectively low. Now they're at risk of being caught by a headhunter because they are underpaid. I loved something that you said in your presentation around nobody should be doing raises simply based on the amount of time. Time, yeah. Could you speak a little bit more to that for the audience? That just drives me nuts. I, I think that a raise for raises' sake it should never happen. I'm not going to pay you more because you survived 12 months for me. <laughs> yes, cost of living, that's appropriate. But if you want to make more, yeah, come in. Let's sit down. Let's talk about your responsibilities, get you some more education, give you some more responsibilities and a bigger role in the practice. I'll pay you more. But just a survival raise, I, I think it, it's expected, but I don't think it's fair to the practice. And a combat to that then would be making growth or skill acquisition, therefore value. They can uh, contribute more to the practice. They have the knowledge now and the education. Now they're doing tech appointments and the doctor's not involved in that. And they're generating revenues, contributing to the practice or just assisting in other ways. You know, they, they're not placing catheters. They get the education, they're placing catheters. They bump up. Sticking with that just for a second, you know, I've found the combination of doing courses and then applying it. I've started to look at paying increments for my team members partly on doing a course but maybe only 30 percent of an available increment for doing the course and 70 percent for demonstrating the skill has now been acquired and, and is I think that's brilliant it. because they got to earn it and I think it's also important when we talk about continuing professional education the best practices do CE for the entire team 
hundred percent. You can send your receptionist, they're the face of your practice, to a local court. It doesn't have to be veterinary, just phone skills, how to have a difficult conversation. Give them some of these additional skills. What I like in, in the best done CE is match the CE to the employee. Mm-hmm. You don't send your introvert, quiet, solid worker to a course about community activism. But at the same time, if you invest in any of your employees, they should come back and do a presentation at the next team meeting. This is what I learned. And share that for two reasons. Number one, you get the maximum benefit. Everyone gets something out of it. More importantly, coming back to educational psychology, to teach something, you have to know it differently. Yeah. So it reinforces what they just learned because now they're sharing it with everyone else. I think, and I don't know how you feel about this, but as a speaker, one of the one of the things, or particularly earlier in my career and when I'm learning more about my sort of favored subject of leadership, you know, to be able to do a presentation on it, you've got to understand it and manipulate it and to put it into an engaging presentation, you've really got to know your stuff. So there's there's some magic to that. I remember when I was head vet of that 18 doctor practice and everybody had a thousand or fifteen hundred pounds so maybe a couple of thousand dollars worth of CE to to spend and the number of people that wanted to do ultrasound everybody wanted to do an ultrasound course and I couldn't tell you a penny of return we got in that money because they go on a course and then not come back and and do enough ultrasound to really have advanced to reinforce it yeah absolutely so there was no link between you know there's no return on that investment that was really easy to demonstrate not in all cases that is a generalization as well but in many, that seems to be the case. In this sort of inflationary environment, and we won't be there for forever, but one of the challenges that I'm thinking of as a practice owner is you know, cost of living, let's say we've seen in the paper there, sort of maybe 8 to 10%. Um, there's a point where you start to worry, and I think you, I'm sure, have a, a closer handle on this than me, but you know, the number I've heard, and I think it was Marty Becker said, you know, we've sort of left 50% of... American pet owners behind already, like they cannot afford access to veterinary care. So perhaps you could comment on that number if you have any accuracy on that. But if we just keep putting the fees up 10%, 10%, you know, wages, costs are going up there, but wages are lagging behind that. And we're opening this sort of gap up. How do we retain good staff in this inflationary environment without losing our you know, the people who fund veterinary medicine. Yeah, I wish I had the answer to that. That's the magic silver bullet. (laughs) And uh, mine's larger than mine are wrapping around it. And the number of pets that don't see. Yeah. Certainly the relationship people have with their pets is really guiding them toward more medicine and and better. And they're doctor Googling themselves and picking things up that way. I do have clients that have the low cost care, the, the most basic, medicine for the masses, yeah, and they're busy. They're crazy busy. And I, to be fair, almost all, every one of my clients is crazy, <laughs> crazy, crazy busy right busy, now, right, running yeah. at capacity. But retaining good staff, you know, I, I think that addresses a lot towards leadership, towards the culture that you've built, towards the investment you're making in the team. Is that being recognized and rewarded, or are they punching a clock? Yeah. Because those are the at-risk. But the demand right now, I tell people, you know, if I had 100 doctors and 100 technicians, if I sent out an email to my clients, within two hours, I'd have all placed. The demand is so high right now, and Completely. including one that had a $100,000 signing bonus. You got half at six months and the other half at 12 months. He couldn't find anyone. 
Still can't. That was a technician. That was a, for a doctor. A doctor. A $100,000 signing bonus. And state-of-the-art practice, every, I mean, the best of the best. So much of the doctor, I think the doctor shortage right now is really, it's hamstringing a lot of practices because the demand's there, but they can't see it. And they're having to say no, which is disempowering to the team and uninflating. It's hard to tell somebody no when my pet's sick. They're begging. They're begging, and you can't fit them in, which is draining on the team and counterculture to the growth. I think a lot of two factors are at play with the shortage. Number one, the work week. You know, it used to be, yeah, veterinarian work five and a half days a week. That was the norm. That's what you did. And long days. And then it's four. Well, right now, I've got a lot of clients. Their full-time work week is 32 hours. And so you go from 40 or 45 to 32, you just cut out 25% of the workforce, which is the shortage. And then the second variable is geography. Most folks come out of school and they're without an ability to move. They won't go anywhere for a good job. And I encounter that as well in selling practices. I have a lot of really nice practices for sale, but they're not where everyone wants to be. And future owners won't move for the opportunity. Is the trend more urban Most rural definitely. struggling? Yeah, within like Pennsylvania as an example. If I have a practice in Philadelphia, I can sell it. I have two really nice ones in the Northwest. I haven't had any inquiries. I had a practice in Indiana that was free. If you bought the real estate and kept the practice open, it's grossing $600,000. Wow. Solid one-doctor practice. Nobody wanted it because they didn't want to move to that part of the state. And so that lack of movement, when I speak to the vet students, I really try to emphasize, if you can go anywhere for your first gig, first job, you're going to find an awesome job and a great mentor. Same if when you buy your first practice, if you can go anywhere, you're going to find a peach. But if you're stuck here because of your partner, spouse, or family support and child care, or whatever the reason is, You're going to take what you can find. And I think that's contributing to some of the negative experience and burnout because these new grads are taking that first job. It's not supporting them. It's not nurturing. I think that's a really interesting point. So let's maybe talk about the opportunities for the next generation of vets because I think quite often, and you, you actually said something interesting here. I don't want this to take us down too much of a rabbit hole. And actually, before we go there, just a word on the comparability of the the measures across countries. Do you have any sort of oh, sense Oh, yeah, that? that's right. That was on the list. Canada, North America, very parallel. And talking with Dr. Sheridan many, many years ago, I think the UK is very parallel. Actually, much of Europe is parallel. I remember when I spoke at Barcelona, Southern European Conference, technicians in Spain were just as expensive as doctors. So when you were hiring, you just hire extra doctors as techs. Yeah. I spoke in Beijing a bunch of years ago, and uh, there was no data there, but I got them to submit data for me, and the percentages were different. Drugs and supplies were lower cost, but support was similar. They didn't have as much support. Their veterinary, I interviewed a lot of them, their their veterinary client experience it was rapidly changing. Yes. I think I was there seven years ago, and at the time, it was just starting to move from doctor-centric to 
pet-centric, but rapid. So I expect it's probably very parallel to us now. I mean, their, their growth rate was changing. But I think overall for the cost of goods, that that's probably similar in most countries. Yeah. The best data to track yourself with is your own. You know, management's raising questions, is looking at that and saying, okay, we're at this percent. Can we get better? Yes. And then finding a way. The variation from country to country, I think, is in that mix of doctor, support staff, expense. Yeah, and it's, I love that piece of advice, like track yourself against yourself. And, and benchmarks are useful to know where roughly on the, the spread you are. But And benchmarks is a misnomer. Okay. Because a, a benchmark is something to aspire to, <laughs> but it's an average. You don't aspire to be average. So it's like, okay, that's the average. Can we do better? Can we get that? And create your own benchmarks. I like it. Keep it aspirational. So that's a nice way to segue back to the where I was taking us, which is next generation. So you hear about the disenfranchisement, you know, in the in the rush and the the bubble of private equity money that that's inflated prices and in multiples for practices, pricing out associates. You know, you hear uh, countless stories of associates who join a practice to buy in, and the the owner's just been offered. A number they can't say no to. It would right. be mad to say Life no changing. to. Life-changing. Life-changing, right? And it's sold out from under their feet. And so I think there is a, a discouragement, a, a lack of belief perhaps out there that, that this is the ownership is attainable. You hear also the story, and I'm not totally sure I, I buy this one, that, that the feminization of the profession. Yeah, I don't buy that at all. Yeah, good. I'm, I don't, I'm I don't have any that. data. I, half of my buyers, more than half of my buyers are women. Brilliant. In doctor-to-doctor transactions. Okay, so. this, this is excellent to hear. That was my suspicion, because like some of the most pipe-hitting great business people I know are women, and, yeah. are, you know, and, and are, are awesome. So brilliant to hear that. So what are the opportunities for not just next generation, but next generation of owners? Not, I'm yeah. not maybe necessarily just saying age there, although, yeah, for graduates coming through, you know, there are lots of people who are interested in the freedom that, that owning a business brings. What are the opportunities? What are the the pitfalls to avoid? Yeah, so I sell practices doctor to doctor. I facilitate transactions and I facilitate tra- corporate sales. And yeah, when you can sell it for two or three times, four times for market value, the associate's not going to get it. And there, there's just two standards of value. There's fair market value. Any doctor can buy it. The profit pays for the practice. In a three to five year period. Ten years. Ten year is the typical veterinary lender financing okay. term. 20 years for the real estate, 10 years for the practice. And then there's the synergistic value, investment value, which is where corporations buy. Okay. Associates can't pay investment value. And if you could, you wouldn't. It's like paying $30,000 for a $10,000 car. It doesn't make any sense. But associates can buy what the corporations can't, which is a practice where the owner wants to retire. Corporations need the owners to stay. So if the owners say, I want to retire, I'm done. Whether it's one, two, three doctor practice, that's ripe. Now, you might have to move to get that. It's not going to be within 10-minute, 20-minute drive of where you live. And I think the one and two doctor practices, for the same reasons, they're just not corporate. I talked with a lot of buyers that say, oh, I want a three doctor practice. I don't want to be alone. That's where the corporates are chasing, Exactly, right? and you can't compete. So shifting your sights to look towards that one doctor, one and a half, two doctor, you can grow it to be a two or three doctor and, and get where you want to be. 
So for the future owners or, or current students, I'm a big advocate of the VBMA, Veterinary Business Management Chapters. Great group. At each, and, and I've sold a lot of practices to VBMA grads, and I love that because they're passion. I am seeing over the last 20 years fewer I don't think the number of future owners went down, but the number of other graduates went up. So as a percentage, it came down. But I'm starting to hear, and I talk to a lot of my colleagues and competitors as brokers, and some of the veterinary lenders, it's starting. There is an undercurrent of associates realizing, yes, they told me this was gonna be the best thing since sliced bread, and corporate practice, I'm not digging it, and that I think we're going to see a move back to private ownership and more associates wanting the responsibility, wanting to be the guide for the business, wanting to take care of the employees and the employees' families and be an active part in the community because they're not seeing it in the, the corporate. I really hope that that happens. And, and I'm, you know, in my work, I'm ownership agnostic. If somebody wants to learn great leadership and work on culture happy for that to be corporate or independent so what i'm about to say isn't bashing corporate medicine per se but there is a it impacts and it changes the the nature of of the community generally it can it doesn't always i've worked with many great very very good corporate groups that pay attention to details what we will see i think in urban suburban areas they're going to be corporately owned practices. Yeah, totally. Or the pie is going to get sliced so small that you own a job, and when it's time to retire, you can't sell a job. So you're going to sell furniture, fixtures, and equipment. But once you leave those environments and you get in more rural, smaller communities, we're going to see you know, that's where private ownership is still rocking it. The energy, and I, the community I was referring to there was more the veterinary community. Yes. In the UK, we're, I think we're north of 65% corporate ownership. And we're starting to see a sort of rebound of people who've sold their practices, who are quite young, they had another 10 years of work left in them, stuck around for their two-year, you know, clawback buyout period, and then, you know, bummed about, like enjoyed, like sat on their yard or did again. whatever but came back with better resources, better leadership awareness, better medical skills, and there's some really interesting new practices opening up that are, I think, going to really do an incredible job. But the nature of the profession over over the last two, three decades that I've been in it has you know, started to shift, you know, where you know, events like this, really good energy at it. Um, Jim Ladd and, and PSI Vet have done a cracking job, so shout out to them for that. There's a good energy amongst, because it's, it's not all homogeny. It's not one regional director who's sort of telling everybody how to, how to do their job. There's a melting pot of ideas and innovation that happens in that sort of environment or this kind of environment that's exciting. And, it, and it's great. To, that collegiate feel is there. It feels like that, that diminishes. And so at conferences, for example, there isn't really a, a need for the vendors to go to a big conference to convince veterinarians to do something because they just convince a buyer of what drug they're going to stock. And it's all a, it becomes a numbers game. And the profession, I feel, has lost something a little bit. Like It's become more of an industry and less of a profession with Interesting. that trend. Yeah. I don't know that there's a question in there, maybe more just an observation. but More of an industry and less of a profession. That, that's a risk, and that's scary, mm. actually. It's a very trusted profession. You don't trust industries. 
And, and that, to me, is really scary. And I love seeing here, the, like you just mentioned, the interaction where Terrific. you don't have to be alone. And that's where I love the business conferences, VHMA, big fan of that. And like what we've got here where it's not necessarily the medicine. And the interaction is where ideas are generated and you don't have to reinvent the wheel and, here, try this. It worked for me. And yeah. Whereas I, I speak at other large conferences and even smaller state ones, nobody talks to each other. You're sitting right next to somebody in a session on HR with the same problems you have, but you're not saying, hey, what's your, you know, why what's are your you take here? On this, right? And I think an opportunity is lost. Uh-huh. That, yeah, you're hearing the speaker, but you could be interacting with each other. And the value of, of the conference is as much in the bar as it is. In the, Where in stories the are told and, and shared. And Correct. And, and you, I said people, like, when you go to a conference and you see all these people who are like the, you know, the inverted commas, you know, the luminaries or the, the gods of their fiefdom, whether it's orthopedics or management or whatever, and they're telling stories. They're never telling stories of how awesome they are. They're telling stories of, like, the incredible screw-ups they've had or the time they left, like, a six pairs of scissors in a dog's <laughs> abdomen or... Yeah. Or the, you know, the hilarious stories that you hear. But it's that collegiality that we're in this together that, that is a real antidote against burnout. It is. And an antidote against the, the industry uh-huh. side. Because you get that collegiality and collaborative work. That's almost like an antidote <laughs> to being the homo- forced homogeneity. So kind of following on from the you know, the opportunities available to people, you know, find a place, smaller place, smaller doctor place, location where it's kind of hard to sell, retiring doctor. We're in an uncertain economic time. Do you think we're headed for a recession? I mean, we're we're almost technically in a recession now. So two perspectives. Okay. My retirement event horizon is out. (laughs) I'm hoping for a recession, personally. Yeah. You know, buy low, sell high. This because for the, the younger listeners, this is an opportunity. Okay. Can you expand upon that point? Well, I, I think the, for retirement planning, investments, as the, in the States, the stock market's coming down and down and down. Yeah. Yeah. For my parents who are retired, this is not good. For me, who's saying, oh, this is an opportunity to invest, because it will go back up. Mm-hmm. Five, ten years in the long term, just investment strategy. A recession's great if you have money you Cash. can be investing. Yes. So the other flip side, I'm not worried about a recession. Now remember, my focus is practice financial health, practice value, helping people buy and sell practices. So it's a very narrow view. And I say I'm not worried about it because good financially healthy practices can weather the storm. And the ones that can't are probably going to get lucky. And we're not recession-proof, but we're recession-resistant. And I also say that because we're, we're fortunate to have veterinary lenders that, recession or not, they'll loan the money. I had transactions many years ago. Yeah, interest rates were 9%, 10%. Money's available. And, and the profit still pays the debt and pays the taxes. The rent pays the mortgage. So if you want to own... The recession's not, should not be an impediment. So we shouldn't let like fear get in the way. Yeah. Obviously better to borrow money at 3% than 6 if you sure. can do it, but... 
But if you get in and you're successful in the practice, and most practices grow with a new owner, you're going to have excess cash. You prepay the debt, you're going to undo that higher interest rate, and you're back down. So de- and debt's something that's uh, you know I I, I have a, a Scottish upbringing, you know quite a, as described my dad is kind of like a, a Bolshevik Presbyterian like in some <laughs> ways he's quite sort of left wing and and uh, socialist and in other ways he's like you know just like I can see him eating porridge made with water like oatmeal with water and salt not with like milk and sugar because it's too it's too woo woo and yeah. you know. So debt, I was quite allergic to debt, and it took me quite a long time to sort of get my head around the fact, you know, what was good debt and what was bad debt. Yeah, I, I try to emphasize when I speak to the VBMA chapters on, on that, because good debt is money you borrow for something that appreciates in value or enables you to make more. So student debt, that's good debt. Buying a practice, that's good debt. The business is going to appreciate in value and generate more revenue. Everything else is bad debt. Extra discs for my disc golf bag, <laughs> that's bad debt, right? Or, you know, because it's not producing a return. A new car is bad debt. I tell students, the worst thing you can do is graduate, get that job, and say, I've earned that new truck or car or whatever. You've earned it. Most definitely. You survived. You got your diploma. Resist because that's not good debt. You drive it off the lot, you lost 20% of the value right there. But so make use of debt. I, I am fiscally conservative. I don't like debt like you. Probably my Irish bringing. But I think there's some things it's worth doing to enable you to go forward. Okay, I like that message. It's, it's, it's useful to you. I, I sort of almost wish I'd heard that 20 years ago. I wish I'd learned it 20 <laughs> years ago. <laughs> so we could talk for ages, and there's so many avenues to dive off down here, but I'm just keeping an eye on, on the clock for us. So I thought maybe we'd segue over into the, the short form, slightly dafter questions, if that's okay with you. I'm going to assume that doing the splits is off of this answer now, but what's the thing you do better than anybody else in this world? What's your superpower? Professionally, I'm a darn good appraiser and broker, and I have an excellent team that enables me, and and I'm standing on the shoulders of giants that have nurtured me professionally. And But I, I like to think that even in the one-on-ones, when we get to the end of the valuation, and it's like speaking today, I'm a good educator in teaching them not just here's your number, but here's what it means, and here's what it could be, and why. And I want them to get as much as possible out of it. And that's part of my passion, is helping people succeed. The fact I get paid to do this just boggles my mind, because I would do it for free. uh, Helping people attain their goals, buying, selling, and becoming successful, it's I got chills thinking about it. So rewarding. And that motivation. And when somebody just says thank you and they really mean it, it's not just flip. Oh, it's priceless. It it really is. And I try not to stagnate on that and continually, oh, they didn't get that. What, how can I change how I said it? So that a different handle that somebody can grab educationally. You mentioned imposter syndrome. I, a hundred percent. I am in, impo- in fear of being called out. That, 
he doesn't know what he, you know, and that's a motivator. It can be debilitating sometimes if you let it get too big. But, yeah, it's got to cover it and make sure you know it. You said two things there. Uh, The second thing was the imposter, that feeling of being an imposter, which, which I just think that's great. You know, you're operating at the top of your game, expert in your field. And it, I don't know that I've spoken to anybody in that, in any category who doesn't always have the sense of that thing. Like I felt in the exact same way when I walked out here on, on Friday morning, you know, it was like, oh, I'm going to get found out now. Like I suck at speaking. And <laughs> Somebody's going to know. Right. Yeah. But the other thing you said there that I thought was quite interesting was when you said you do this work, you know, for free. And that is another phrase. Like, I think that's one of the ways you know you're operating in your zone of genius, that you're just, you enjoy what you're doing so much that you you would never end up doing it for free because you're doing it so well that people w- are very happy to pay. There's a great value exchange. But if you feel like that, you're probably operating in a zone of genius. When you, yeah, when you love what you're doing, yes, yeah, you're not working because you're just doing it and so i'm curious about your notion of work-life balance then we had this conversation the other night with another group that's another misnomer <laughs> you got to put what's important first it's life work balance it's not work life life work and it's funny because this is where we started right i didn't become a veterinarian because of my father the irony is that for the last 20 some years i've been back in the profession working just as many hours a week. I work seven days a week, Saturday and Sundays. I go to the office most days at seven in the morning. I go home at six. And then Saturday and Sunday morning, it's about seven to 11 because Susan and the boys are sleeping. And again, it's not work. You know, I, I get workaholism. You know, I go there, I'm rewarded, I'm appreciated, I'm in control. And things rock and I'm helping people attain these goals and it feels good. You go home, it's chaos. You have no control. I'm lowest on the totem pole. The list is never short. I love it. wouldn't trade it for the world, but I get, you don't get paid you know, I get for why dad worked so hard. Yeah. And I wrestle with the same thing. And right now I am out of balance mm. and I recognize that I'm working on hiring an executive administrator, executive assistant, and maybe another appraiser, because I recognize I'm working too much. Now, there are rewards that I get to spend time with the boys, and they're 16 years old, identical twins, and they like disc golf now, so we can do that. And being successful in a lot of hotel points, we can travel. <laughs> and, and my wife uh, and boys are good travelers, so we try to take lots of little trips and, and pass the rewards on. But I do need to come back into more life than work. Uh, yeah, you called me out on that appropriately. So oh, you just called yourself out there. Like I'm just asking the questions. <laughs> the first step to change is admitting is, is self awareness. Right? right there, you go. So, what single thing has you the most excited about the future of veterinary medicine? And the part B in that is, what single thing has you mo- the most concerned? Mm, good questions. I think the most excited is what I mentioned, the, the under rumblings of ownership. Because I see so many people who have good practices. It pains me when somebody, I tried to sell it and they have to close. I lose sleep for them because I, I was not able to get them where they wanted to go. 
And to have that come back around is exciting and, and I hope becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. If I say it often enough, it's going to happen. <laughs> because there are good practices out there. There are good future owners active in their VBMAs that are learning this. Or they were never active in their VBMA, but they've been out 10 years and they're realizing, you know what, I can do this. Mm. And so when I teach at the conferences on you can own a practice, how to buy a practice, and that's, there's a lot of people in the room. And, I, and that's exciting mm. and very encouraging. At the same time, the sadness in the profession is the wellness and the concerns. And it's across the entire top to bottom of the profession and the, the burnout and not everyone. I, a lot of my clients, big practice, successful cultures and the passions there, and they find solutions because they're trying to do so and balance that, and they're doing it well. But then there's a lot of others where the folks that leave the profession, the good techs that leave the profession, because they're just, it's not a, a welcoming, rewarding environment. And that can be fixed. And that's saddening to see folks leaving a truly wonderful profession. So is there a favorite book you've either gifted or you recommend people read to improve their, and you could go with financial awareness or business awareness? When, when I sell a practice, we give the buyer a mini library, four books, okay. typically. You can have four. And from a management perspective, Marsha Heinke's Practice Made Perfect, and that kind of holds everything in. The fourth one's in transition, but the other two I recommend everyone read. And it's one of those books you reread. So, Who Moved My Cheese? <laughs> These are toilet readers, right? Yeah, and, totally. and every time you read Who Moved My Cheese, it means something different. <laughs> and then The One Minute Manager. And if you can, in, in the earlier editions, the newer ones, because it's really one minute on something you can then focus on during the course of that day. And you just constantly get something, whether it's business skills, business communication, the team, and interpersonal communication at home with family. These are fundamental components. Fantastic. Uh, I will put links in the show notes to those books as well. So thinking back to your, your graduation back those years ago, if you could give yourself one piece of advice back at that day, what would it be? Invest. And we all know the power of compound money and talking with Darby Affeld here today as financial planner. And the sooner you start, the better. Even if it's $50 a month over 10, 20, 30 years, I got a late start. Mm. So I graduated college. I had grand adventures. I mean, went where most people don't. I, listening to boreal owls in the northern Minnesota, you know, hearing timber wolves run by me, and I can hear their footpads. Seeing penguins and breaching whales in the Antarctic or hanging upside down off cliffs in Colorado as a backcountry ranger. I had great experiences for the first six, seven years, eight years after college. I didn't make any money. I didn't save a wick. I wouldn't trade that, but I would have told myself, hey, just $50 Find a, a month. Find a way. Pay yourself first and get it. And I'm hopeful to instill that in my sons because mm. they pay yourself first and put it in there and forget it. 
it'll ride through the stock market's ups and downs and everything else. It's just make it automatic. I think probably that. And and maybe the second would be trust yourself. You're not an imposter. No. <laughs> All right. And if you could send, I know you're not like super big on social media, so you can choose the the vehicle of communication that you so desire. But if you could send one message, let's call it that, to the veterinary world, what would that message be? Flash up on all of our phones as a text or whatever. What would the message be to veterinary medicine from David McCormick? I'd have to think about that. Longer than, idea. longer than two seconds. That's it's probably a good idea. That's profound. If you had the opportunity to get back in touch with why you became a veterinarian, to really... That takes you out of context of the day-to-day, the grind, the frustrations, and give yourself the credit for the difference you're making. Mm. Because that's why they be, many become a veterinarian. You, know, you love animals, you want to help them, and you are making a difference, but lose sight of that in the grind. And you know, to try and reconnect with that joy. I love it. Is there anything that we haven't covered that's really important that we should? Or are there any last sort of messages or thoughts that you would have for the listeners? Yeah, the only one is for the practice owners that are listening to have their practice valued by a veterinary appraiser, not because they're planning on selling, but for management and planning. Get your practice on the exam table of a professional so that they can give you the feedback. Yeah, this is your value, but this is what we learned, kind of where we started. If you're not financially healthy, you've got the opportunity to make a change now instead of waiting to when you're ready to retire. And that can impact your career and retirement and what you can afford to do with your team when you're financially healthy. Even just moving from eight to 12 affords a different level of involvement in your practice. It impacts your family, all of the families of the people that you're shepherding. Perhaps your opportunity to see penguins in their next (laughs) phase of your life or hang off a cliff as to whatever you want to do next as well. David, what a wonderful, I can't believe the time has flown by as quickly as it has. Indeed. I could talk to you for hours, I have no question of that. So real pleasure, real privilege, and long overdue. I'm so glad we did this. Where can people get in touch with you to either have their practice appraised or just to thank you for this awesome information you've shared or reach out and learn more about what you do? Yeah, I do almost everything through phone and email. So the office, I'm in Pennsylvania. Certainly if you see me at a conference, come up and say hello. He's the big one, six foot four. <laughs> they, he's probably not used to do splits. splits. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so his t-shirt guy used to be a split contender. Yeah, yeah but the office, 814-466-7084. Email dmccormick, uh, D-M-C-C-O-R-M-I-C-K, at tmccg.com. Tom, Mary, Charlie, Charlie, George, dot com. I do respond to all phone and email. I don't charge for phone and email. You know, if they have questions or if anyone listening wants resources, I don't know all the answers, but I know people that do. And I will, having watched David today, if you have the chance to see him, if he's on the bill at a conference, do yourself, do your practice a favor and get in that room and and hear him speak. You will not be disappointed. 
David, what a pleasure. Thanks so much yeah, for the thank time. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. Bam! There you go, guys. That is right back at you. Had a little bit of a break just to recharge, so thank you for your patience. But what a show to come back with. David McCormick blew it out of the park. If you enjoyed this show, leave us a review on iTunes. Share this with somebody you think would benefit from hearing this financial information. And also, if you're interested in joining our Vetex community, please go there and support what we do. These shows are free uh, to listen to. They're not free to make. And your supporting the work we do helps us keep making great content like this. So thank you for listening. And until next time, from us all at Vetex International, be safe, be well, and be happy.